We're in First uh, Timothy chapter six, beginning in verse eleven. So read along with me. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. For who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. So is the reading of the word of God. You may be seated. If you will, just join me in a time of prayer. Father God, we know that in and of ourselves we are inadequate to do these things. Father, the Christian life is very much about depending upon you and not just acting our way into the right life, Father, but trusting in you and letting the gospel form us around uh, your word. And so, Father, right now, I come to you just as a pastor who needs the Holy Spirit, Father, uh, to break through walls, to break through uh, my own inadequate communication, Father and that you will reach hearts, Father, that are uh, enslaved to sin and in need of your salvation. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. If you're new with us, our normal rhythm as a church is to pick a book or a letter of the Bible and to just walk through it verse by verse. We want to see all that God's Word has to tell us, and we want to try to apply it as best as possible. It's good news for you, because that means I don't pick sermons that I want to preach. Sometimes I have to preach sermons I don't want to preach because the text demands that I preach the Word of God. And so we are in the very last part of 1 Timothy 6 today, and next week we'll be finishing off. And then if you want to join us uh, for sure in two weeks, we'll be starting up Exodus. And so we'll be going back uh, to the Old Testament. As world history so often demonstrates, kingdom shifts demand currency reforms. When the old passes away and a new power rises, new values must be established and the treasury must be reorganized. In other words, new governments come with new money. We see that in world history, right? We see that all over the world. When there's a shift in the government system, what happens? There's new money printed. There's new faces on new dollars. There's new faces on new coins. This solidifies the new government's power and funds its new objectives. 
in such shifts, the foolish are the ones who hold on to the outdated, depreciating money, while the wise are the ones who make that transition as early as possible. So just go back in time for me, just as an example. Imagine living in East Germany on November 9th, 1989, watching as the Berlin Wall is being chipped away and is being knocked down. A public notice is spread throughout the people that uh, by July 1st, 1990, all Eastern marks are going to be out of date and are going to be worthless. That's the official money of East Germany, that it was going to be demonetized and essentially every Eastern mark was going to become worthless. It was going to be worth nothing in this new reunified Germany. Now, if you heard that statement, hey, Germany's reuniting, East Germany's dead, we are doing away with the old currency and we are bringing a new currency, you have until this date to change your currency, what would you do? Well, if all your money's in Eastern marks and you're wise, you're in line. You're maybe, you're maybe the first in line. I'm going to exchange my money as quickly as possible for this new government. But yet, you read the history books and people were lined up with thousands and thousands of dollars in Eastern marks up to the last minute of the last day and some even forgot to change their money. Which means on July 2nd, 1990, there was several people left with worthless pieces of aluminum for coins and dollars that were used for nothing more than to start fires in fireplaces. Now, my friends, I tell you that story because this is the tragedy that many of you and many in our country will see when the kingdom of God is fully and finally established. The gospel has gone out and it says there is a new king who has been crowned. He was dead, he was buried, and he is risen and he reigns and a new kingdom government is coming. And with that new kingdom government comes new values and a new treasure. Therefore, prepare. The best, most appropriate thing you can do right now is to prepare before the kingdom is fully established. And yet, in a great act of foolishness, people hold on to the treasures of this world and they wait to the very last moment thinking that on their deathbed, they'll have one final moment to exchange the treasures of this world for the treasures of the new kingdom. And it's too late. Some people go their whole lives grasping onto the things of this world, hoping for one last ditch effort to get something that will last and they die and go into eternity realizing that the treasures they lived for their lifelong was, were nothing more than trash. Worthless pieces of paper and metal coins. Seeing the urgency and imminence of Christ's return, Paul urged Timothy and those who were rich in the Ephesian church to pursue the right kind of treasure. Put simply, he urged them to live in the present world with their focus on eternity. They were to live in the now while living for the yet to come. With the new kingdom of Christ coming powerfully into the world, Paul wanted Timothy and the Ephesians to pursue the things of God, to pursue things that would last into eternity, and not hold on to things that would die away with the world when Christ came back. So I'm just going to briefly map out our discussion from here. Number one, we're going to consider the now and not yet reality of the gospel. 
Number two, we will look carefully at Paul's exhortations to Timothy and to the Christians who are rich in Ephesus, making observations for ourselves along the way. And then number three, we're going to consider, uh, uh, we're going to make some specific applications in light of the text at hand. So let's look at that now and not yet reality of the gospel. Throughout the New Testament, you read the Bible, there's, there's this tension that is held in the biblical authors. We have the promises of God now, and yet the promises of God are yet to be fully delivered. So you see it in, in very different ways. We call this in, in theology inaugurated eschatology, which means the, the end has already begun. It's not fully completed yet, but the promises that God Uh, that God gave us, saying what would happen in the end have already begun in this day and age, in this life, even knowing they're not fully accomplished yet. Let me give you an example. Uh, It is clear that the biblical authors know that all of history is marching to new creation. And if you read Revelation 21, it's a new creation where God uh, wipes away the old world, makes a new heavens and a new earth. New Jerusalem powerfully comes down from heaven, and God forever dwells with his people. The veil is torn back, death is wiped away, and it is a new heaven and a new earth. And we all know that's not happened yet. It's a future reality, a future promise that we're waiting for. And yet, Paul has the gall to say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are, present tense, a new creation. What's he saying with that? He's not denying that new creation is a future reality. But he's clarifying that that future reality has crashed powerfully into our present. That eternity has already begun. That the that the promises of God are already being delivered. Even if we don't have those promises Fully, yet, in our hands, we have foretaste, we have glimpses of them. And so, as people of God, we are the beginning of the new creation that is to come. See the now and not yet? Here's another example. Revelation 21 speaks of the day that God proclaims himself from the throne. The dwelling place of God will be with man. God says that himself from the throne. And it is a day where God's people actually see and praise God. And the the veil torn back, the presence of God fully established. And yet, Paul talks about God's spirit as an installment of that. As a down payment as he says in Ephesians 1.14, that God's in-time presence has already been given to some extent as God's Spirit comes and dwells in you. Do we have the full dwelling Shekinah glory of God and the presence of God on earth right now? Well, not to the fullest extent, but you have a down payment of it living in your chest. Now and not yet. God's presence is here. You have it. The promise has already been delivered to some extent, and yet it has yet to be completed. The end has already begun. Now, at the center of this now and not yet theology is the cross and the resurrection. How is it that God's eternal promises, that eternity has broken in so powerfully into the present? Well, it's because of this. Jesus Christ, who died as a sacrificial lamb for sin, has removed the separation, has torn the veil, presence of God, God and man, completely reconciled again in Jesus Christ. He was buried. And then if you want to hear end time stuff, go read the end of the Gospels where Jesus raises again. 
That's an end-time promise. The resurrection is an end-time promise that God's people will not be held down by death. And Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruit of that. You want the first example of what our resurrection is going to be like. Look to the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection age has already begun. So because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and has risen again, eternity has crashed into our present. And yet, we're so bored with this life. It's so mundane. It's so, there's nothing really happening. And the biblical authors are saying the wall is coming down. Berlin is going to be reunited. There is a new kingdom coming. And it has already begun. It is here now. Live in preparation for its full and final coming. I think that's the point of 1 Timothy 6. I think Paul wants Timothy and these rich Ephesian Christians to understand that the world and all the things in the world, all the toys, all the treasures, all the things that we tend to want and we drool after are dying away. Old currency, outdated, demonetized, worthless, valueless, trash. Therefore, live for the things that are eternal. We're going to see this in many different ways, I think. When Paul says, but as for you, he's signaling something. He's signaling that this whole discussion that he's about to give in 1 Timothy 6 is pertaining all the way back to what he said about the false teachers of Ephesus in the previous section. We saw that they were greedy. We saw that they were conceited. We saw that they were living for both profit and for power. They wanted to be godly in front of people so that people would respect them and so that people would pay them. They lived very much for this world's treasures. And so he contrasts how Timothy and the Ephesians are to live by saying, but as for you, they're to live in marked contrast with these false teachers. Not having a semblance of the love of money, not having a semblance of treasures of this world. More specifically, these Christians are to live in light of Jesus's real and imminent return. Now, I hope the rubber is going to hit the road for you this this morning. We talk about Jesus' return, but some of us don't actually believe it's happening. We talk about Jesus being a real Lord and a real Savior, but yet some of us still live as if it will never actually happen. The wall will never fall. And the new kingdom won't actually come. But if we put our money where our mouth is, no pun intended with that, then we're going to actually believe that Jesus' return is real, that it's imminent, and that is the biggest thing in our whole lives that we can prepare for. Bigger than our jobs, bigger than our careers, bigger than our houses, bigger than our property, bigger than all the things that we play with. Because Jesus is coming back. A new king is coming, new kingdom established. Therefore, get your new currency in line now. So let's start with Timothy, the man of God. Paul begins by addressing him as a man of God. And if, you, if you've read that title before, you know that uh, the Bible uses that of Moses, of David, and Elijah. The men of God in the Bible are men who are specifically set aside to serve God and to build his kingdom. And so by calling him a man of God, Paul's setting aside going, Timothy, you know 
that you're to be building the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God, not your kingdom, not the church's kingdom, the kingdom of God. You're to be building that. And therefore, he is to carefully avoid the worldly lifestyles of the false teachers while leading a life that honors God. First, he tells them this. He tells them to flee and pursue the things of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, these two instructions go together. We, we tend to read things separately too often. And I think what Paul's actually telling Timothy here is flee and pursue. These are two instructions that are the same action. Flee from conceit. Flee from unhealthy cravings. Flee from the love of money and pursue what? Righteousness, godliness. Pursue the things of God. He must run from one thing and run to the other. Ultimately, this is what we do when we repent. You know, so this being a, a daily action of our life that we flee from one thing and we, we pursue, we run to an entirely new thing. We run to uh, the new things of God. Let me give you some examples. We run from greed to godliness, from selfishness to sacrifice, from pornography to praise, from racism to racial reconciliation. We run from envy and from covetousness to gratitude and thankfulness. That's the life of the Christian. He, he gives it in the present tense. Do this daily. Flee and pursue. That's how you're to live your life. Flee and to pursue. And every vice that you're called out of, you're called into an act of worship. Second, Paul tells Timothy to fight for faith and to take hold of eternal life. He says this, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Again, we have two imperatives here that are given in, in one same action. Fight and grasp. That's what it means to take hold. Fight and grasp. Now, both of those words imply perseverance and struggle. Fight, grasp, cling to, clutch, hold on to. Use your nails and dig in deep to it. Hold on to it. It should be no surprise to us that living in this world makes living for God very difficult. The Bible tells us it. The Bible warns us of it. We know it, but yet, on a daily basis, we wonder, why is it so hard to live for God? James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world in the present makes himself an enemy with God. Friendship with the world and friendship with, the God, do, with God do not go together. And therefore, we have this tension, this battle. The world knows that if it can gain our love, if it can gain our affection, if it can gain our delight, then it knows it will draw us away from God. And every single day we enter into this fight. Not a fight to prove that God is real, right? We tend to think about fighting for the faith as like an apologetics. We're going to prove why evolution's wrong and all that kind of stuff. No, no, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about applying the faith, the gospel, in a powerful way in your life. 
applying it in the daily struggles, in the college classroom, when you are a marginalized minority, when your boss lobs unfair criticisms at you, when you're standing in the bathroom looking at that negative pregnancy test, when you have prayed and prayed and prayed for another baby, when you're sitting in the living room and your house is a mess because the kids are just out of control, when the doctor walks in and he says your test results are in, when you're sitting in the funeral home and you're saying goodbye to a loved one, those are the moments that we fight for faith. We fight to bring the gospel into our present reality. We fight to make eternity a daily reality. Every day, waking up, fighting and grasping, fighting and grasping, not waiting to make eternity a reality, but holding on, taking on to eternity now. That's the life of the believer. Now, the question is why? Why should we flee and pursue, fight and grasp? Without a doubt, everyone knows it is far easier to live for the things of this world. I mean, we like the concept of living for God, but then we see the shiny car. It's far easier to pursue those things. It's far easier to fight for those things, to scrunch and to, scre- to, 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 to try to cling to every dollar so that we can buy some of these things. So why should we be so motivated to live for the things of God and to flee from the things of the world? Here's what he says. He gives two foundational motivations. And the first one is simply this. Jesus is coming. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. Do you hear that now and not yet theology? He is in the presence of God now. I charge you in the presence of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is coming back. Everything that Timothy does is to be based in the fact of the future reality that his Lord and Savior will indeed come. In the present tense, flee, pursue, fight, take hold of. Why do that on a daily basis? Because Jesus is coming back soon. That's the foundational motivation. Live in the present for the future that's coming. Believers, the same is true for us. The king of the universe is soon to split the sky. Now, we tend to hear that and we're like, whoa, 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 you're being a bit radical. (laughs) There have been books written about this and it's really weird when people talk about Jesus coming back. But the king of the universe is soon to split the sky and everything you and I hold dear in this world that is this worldly is going to be gone. And yet we live our whole lives pretending as if this world, our jobs, our possessions, our homes, our our, our things that give our families comfort, our entertainment, as we live as if that's all there is. And Paul goes, wait a second, Timothy. Flee, pursue, fight, grasp. Why? Because your Savior is coming back. Do you really believe that? Now, the second foundational motivation 
in obeying the, the commands of God is God himself. Paul does this so regularly. He'll start talking about something really cool, like the return of Christ, and then he's just like, time out. I got to praise. I got to worship. And so he starts off with this doxology. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal, eternal dominion. Amen. Now in this, this sounds like an absolutely parenthetical statement. But that's not what he intends it for. He actually means it to be motivation to live in the present for the future. Why? Because God is the eternal king. He's the only sovereign. Let me tell you how many kings who have died have held on to their kingdoms. Zero. Every single king, every single president, every single tyrant, every single despot that has ever lived and sat his uh, rear end on a throne has eventually had to abdicate to death or defeat. There's only one who doesn't ever abdicate his throne. There's only one who never removes himself from his throne and will never be moved from his throne. The only sovereign. Why, do we, why should we live for this day and age? Why should we live for the age that's coming, not for the age that is here now? Why should we live in the present for the future? Because God's the only king that really matters. I mean, he says it in beautiful ways. He's the God who, who dwells in an unapproachable light. And then he begins to talk about he's invisible. Now we read that and we fly right over that not knowing what that means. I think what he's talking about, an unapproachable light, those words specifically describe what happened in Exodus 19. The Israelites are standing before Mount Sinai, and God comes down onto the mountain. Does anyone see him? Absolutely not. Why? Because he's surrounded by, by fire and smoke. He's invisible. But you know what? There was not one Israelite that day that was not shaking. We tend to think invisible things are not frightening things. Invisible things are not powerful things. We don't see it, therefore, it's not that important. And I think when Paul says that God is the, unappro- is the God who dwells invisibly in unapproachable light, I think he's recalling Exodus 19 and say, it's saying, you might not see him, but he is not inconsequential. You might not see him, but he is very much alive, fearful, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an invisible God. What a great motivation. We tend to live for the things that we see. We live in fear of the things that we see. We are motivated by the things that we see, and we tend to think, ah, God's nice, but we don't see him right now. Therefore, we will live for the things that we see. And Paul's saying, no. God is more real, more sovereign, more mighty, more holy, more eternal than even the things that your hands can touch. And then he says powerfully, That he is the God to whom honor and eternal dominion will be forever. His dynasty is the only one that lasts. His kingship is the only one that lasts. They crown his head. That crown will not go to another. Therefore, Paul, Paul telling Timothy, live for the eternal king. And I think it also tells him to be bold. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, 
and cannot kill the soul. And I think I can paraphrase this. Do not live for the things that can comfort the body, (laughs) but cannot comfort the soul. Do not live for the things that bring pleasure to the body, but do not bring pleasure to the soul. Do not live for things that bring joy to the eyes, but do not bring joy to the eyes. I think you could paraphrase that in many different ways. But he says, basically, do not live for those who can do things to you now. Live for the one and live in fear of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Live for the one who can make an eternal difference. Live for the one who can impact your eternity, not for the things that can impact your temporal life here. I think the same applies to us here. Don't fear these things. Don't fear the pressures. Don't fear the money pressures. Don't fear the the calls from the bank. Don't fear the threats that they're going to take away this or take away that. Don't fear life if, if you have to get a smaller house. Why? Because God's the eternal king. We're fearing over things that are dying. I think he makes that even more powerful when he, he, he says it more profoundly when he speaks to the rich. He's talking to Timothy, and I think in, in the way that I read Paul's writing, I think he's telling Timothy, Timothy, live for the kingdom to come right now. And then I think he goes, oh, you know who would benefit from this a lot? Let's talk to the rich as well. And so he turns his attention to the rich, and in verse 17 he says, as for the rich in this present age, now that tips you off, doesn't it? He's about to say something similar to what he said to Timothy. He's talking to those who are rich in this present age, those who are wealthy now. Those who have money and those who would call themselves upper class, upper middle class, lower middle class, or even lower, lower class. If you have money, those who have money now, listen to this, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He calls those who have money now to live in the present with their eyes set on eternity. It's interesting how your bank accounts and the way that you use your bank accounts impacts and reveals and betrays the way that you think about God and about eternity. Specifically, here's what he says. Don't be prideful about your wealth. Got a new car? Great. You showing it off? Are you proud about it? You got a big house, you need to take big tours of it so everybody can see your big kingdom now? We got we to gotta be proud. We, we don't just get the possessions. We get the possessions so that we can make a statement. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't set your hope on it. He says, don't be haughty about it, nor set your hopes. And he, he, he expresses the foolishness of it on the uncertainty of riches. You don't know that you're going to have them tomorrow. I think this same mistake that Paul is warning against is a make, mistake that we see the rich, young, uh, the rich fool in Luke 12 making. In Luke 12, there's this rich fool. He, gets, he, he has a ton of money. He's lived, and now he doesn't have to do anything. You talk about early retirement, collecting seashells on the beach, um, walking in the evenings on the, on the seashore, watching the sunrise sun, sun at sunsets. I mean, he's, this guy's got it made. And he says, ah, oh, I can build my barns bigger, and I can eat, drink, and relax. And in that moment, God says, you fool. Tonight, your life will be required of you. And who will get your riches then? 
Now here's what's scary about that. Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Isn't that scary? To think about all the things you've accumulated in your life and all the things that you have worked for and you have just strived for and you've white-knuckled it for to realize that you are impoverished in your relationship with God and that all those things will be left to somebody else. Don't be prideful about them. Don't put your dependence on them. Instead, set your hope on God. And he goes even further and gives specific. He works from the general to the specific. They are to do good, specifically to be rich in good works. So that's, that's an interesting word play there. He's kind of he's helping them understand that wealth and riches is not a matter of how much money you have. Instead, it's a matter of what you do. Okay? They, are to be, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. That's how the, right, that's how the wealthy righteous are to live in this day and age. Let me ask you, what are you willing to part with? What are you willing to give away? The things that your hands hold on so tightly to are the things that you value the most. And Paul is telling them, ironically, the way to be rich in eternity is to give away your riches now, to be ready to be generous and to share. Now, again, he's not against you having wealth. But he is against you accumulating it for your own pleasures, for your own kingdom. He wants you to think about the way that you are using your wealth. How are you using that 65,000 annual income that you get? How are you using that new car? How are you using that big house? How are you using your bank statements? How are you using these things? That's what he wants you to think through because he wants you to understand that everything in this life that we buy for ourselves is ultimately ultimately flawed and fading and dying away. And in order for us to stir up treasures for ourselves as a good foundation for the future, we must be willing to part with the treasures of this world. We must be generous. Here's what he says. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I have no idea if the idiom uh, that you know we hear a lot of people say, "Oh, this is the life." I don't know if that was around then, but he's kind of saying, uh, "Yeah, you, you don't. That's not life. To be set, to be cruising. Not. I'm not talking about on the cruise. I'm actually going on a cruise next year. But to be cruising through life, to kind of set your 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 life on autopilot because you're so wealthy, so rich, and you've worked so hard. That's not the life. Do things with your finances, with your money, with your riches. Work for things that are eternal, not temporary. Because that will lead you to true life. That will help you take hold of what's real life. Therefore, Christians who are rich are to live in light of the future imminent kingdom of God. Both Timothy, I don't know how much money Timothy had, and the rich. So it applies both to poor, it applies both to it applies also to the rich. It applies to those who are doing things in this life and it applies to those who have things in this life. Both people, Timothy and the rich, are to live in such a way that has their eyes firmly fixed on eternity, on the kingdom to come. 
And you can see why these words are really needed for us, right? This first century church and advice to the first century church is very much needed in the 21st century. Where money is happiness in many ways. Where the size of your TV screen is the size of your joy. The, the cushions of your shoes uh, express the cushion of your life. You know, it, it, surely, surely you see how this applies in our day and age. We're even closer than they were to that kingdom coming. We're even, fur, we, we're even further along. Redemption is on the horizon. Even closer than they were. And yet, we live even more in our wealth. We live even more in our worldly comforts. The wall between this age and the next is coming down. In his own timing, God will send his son, and he will set up his eternal kingdom, and everything that has been this kingdom is going to go away. What does that mean? It means currency reform. The new kingdom will come with new treasures. And those who live in the new kingdom have new treasures right now. Wall coming down, exchange those treasures. The treasures that you have right now and are working for right now will soon be demonetized. And what's crazy is that you won't even want them in the new kingdom and new earth. The things that you want so badly right now, you're not going to desire anymore. We'll talk about that here in a minute because I've got three basic applications. I'm getting a little bit ahead. First, and the three applications are simply this. Reconsider, reassess, and then recondition. I tried to be cute with that. First, reconsider what it means to have a crucified and risen Savior. Jesus did not come to save this life for this world. He came to give you new life for a new world. Do you see that? Jesus didn't die so that now you will have blessing in your bank account, blessing in your job, blessing in your car, right? I mean, it's, just, it's, just, it's ironic how so often when things go wrong, we tend to think, God's against me. My car battery's out. My bills are piling up. Jesus did not come so you could pay bills better or so that your car wouldn't die. Jesus came to give you new life for the new world. That was his purpose in coming. And it is, it is by his death for your sin. It is by his sacrifice for your rebellion. That this age of rebellion and sin has come crashing down. And his resurrection has signaled the age to come. We so often think of the cross and the resurrection as a past event. Happened 2,000 years ago. It's done. No, friends. It might have been in the past. It has eternal ramifications for the rest of your life. And for the rest of your eternity. When you get to heaven, you will not be showing off your car. You'll be singing about the cross. Do you see that? It's a past reality that changes your eternity forever. Reevaluate what it means to have a crucified and risen Savior. You don't need as much as you think you need. I'm the worst baby. I just got to tell you. I like my creature comforts. Uh, One of the elders joked this week that if I ever started doing a bad job, they'd cut my book budget. And I said, listen here, you can cut my salary. You can slash my tires, but you better not touch my book budget. I know, just like all of you, what it's like to have idols. 
And yet, it's funny, is because all the things that we think we need, we fail to realize we have already in Christ. We need a new promotion. Why? Because we need respect. We need popularity. We need people to listen. We need a bigger house. Why? Because we just need a little extra space and a little more wall room so we can have two more inches on the TV screen. I've seen people change houses because they couldn't get those extra two inches to fit in the living room. And yet, Jesus says, wait a second, I've died for you, and I've risen again, and you think you still need more? Reevaluate what it means to have a risen Savior who is personally yours. Now, some of you here today don't have any clue what that means, because you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus You don't know what it means to trust in a crucified Savior who died for your sins so that you can have a relationship with God. And I just invite you today. The kingdom currency is waiting at the cross. The new treasures that will last for eternity is waiting with Jesus. A new kingdom is coming. A new king is already on the throne. And soon his kingdom will be fully here. You're invited to free citizenship in his kingdom by faith in Jesus. Why would you stay in this world any longer? Why would you live for this world any longer? Second, reassess your treasure. Everyone, including your pastor, is vulnerable to the love of money, and it sometimes manifests itself in the ways we least expect. We tend to agree with the concept of contentment, right? We all understand contentment's a good thing. Until we see our neighbor's new car, and we see our co-worker's new promotion. We're pretty amenable to the idea that treasure is not of this world until the stock stock market starts to decline and our 401k takes a bit of a dip. Then all of a sudden, like, whoa, I didn't realize it would cost that. It's almost like this that reveal where your true treasure is. What are you willing to do to get money? What are you willing to do to keep money? How do you respond when you lose money? What is your real treasure? Let me just tell you what 1 John 2.17 says. And the world is passing away. Do you hear that? That's like the doctor walking into the room. Yeah, we did several tests on the world and we've realized it's got a terminal illness and it's dying. The world is passing away. Along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying not only is the world passing away and all the things that make the world the world, but also the desires, the cravings. Do you realize in the new heaven and new earth, no one will want a 1967 Corvette or a big screen TV? They won't want it. (laughs) Can you imagine what Black Fridays are going to look like in the new heaven and new earth? Some of us, life won't change at all. We'll keep chewing on the turkey. But for some of us, that's going to be a major shift. To not know what it's like. Oh my gosh, there's a big cell. I don't know how to get there and I'm going to go camp. I won't come to church on time, but I'll come and I'll camp out in the parking lot. My friends, it's so funny where our desires fall. It's It's so funny where our affections are. And if you could look into eternity future and you could just imagine where you're at 
and that new Jerusalem as the king comes walking down the streets hand in hand with his people, speaking his sweet eternal words to us, saying, my beloved. And people singing, the king is on his throne. Behold, the lamb who was slain, who was and is and is to come. I don't think you're going to be thinking about the current auction debate that you're in on your internet. I don't think you're going to be wanting a new iPhone upgrade. My friends, reevaluate what you treasure. You want it now. You won't want it later. So why not treasure the right things now so that you have the most consistency in your desires between this age and the age to come? Wouldn't it be nice to get to heaven and say, this is what I've always wanted? Instead of having to say, I wanted something completely different, but by the grace of God, he's given me something new. Why not instill those affections in our heart now? Third, recondition the way you spend and the way you use your possessions. I've already said it before, Paul's not against having money. Paul had rich friends, I'm sure. He's against loving money. He's not against you uh, having money, he doesn't demonize wealthy and rich. He doesn't say, hey, I expect you all to go out there from here, out and out, and I want you to live in a box. He's not saying that. But he wants you to consider the way you use your wealth. Do you do good now to have fruit in the eternal life that is to come? Is your passion for the kingdom of God. My friends, you hear missions here, and some of you might hear missions, and you get sick of hearing missions. You get sick of hearing evangelism. You get sick of hearing church planting. My friends, we fund what we value. Do you value the kingdom of God on earth? Do you value people in Brazil hearing the gospel and being in eternity with you as brothers and sisters, praising the Savior? Do you value Churches being planted in places where there's no peace, no love, no joy. We spend and we spend and we spend and we spend. We spend way more than we could ever imagine. About once a month, my wife and I will sit down and we'll try and have a budget discussion. We set out our plans. We want to honor God with our money. And yet, inevitably, at the end of the month, I've just spent a little too much on my coffee. I've just spent a little too much on my personal book collection. But you know what? I value my coffee. I value my book collection. There's nothing wrong against me having coffee and books, right? Surely it's okay for me to pick up a novel once in a while and read it and to have a good cup of coffee while I'm doing it, right? Absolutely not. There's no problem with that. But the problem is, is when I begin to value those things more than I value seeing the kingdom of God on earth. When I begin to scrunch and save for my coffee and my books, but I'm a, a meagerly miser when it comes to giving it away to missionaries, when it comes to giving it away to the people of God, when it comes to giving it away for those who have need. My friends, the way you spend money determines and, and betrays the way you value the kingdom of God. To so reassess, reevaluate, recondition. This is the way that you prepare for the kingdom to come. And gradually, by doing these things, we make the currency exchange. We make the currency reform. We have a treasure change. And we get ready for the new kingdom that is already here and is coming finally in the future.
Will you evaluate the way you live now in light of the future that is to come? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we love you. We thank you that you have helped us, Father, to find new treasure in Jesus. God, we have no doubt in our own hearts we love money, sometimes more than we love you, oftentimes more than we love you. Sometimes we forget that the future is coming and Jesus is real and Jesus is coming back. Father, will you help us now to reorient our hearts to eternity and that our present eyes will look beyond this dead and cold world to the world that is to come in Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.